So Genesis 29, beginning to read at verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob, came near, Jacob, sorry, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered, all to get, gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah 
to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to, be, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Thank you, Wendy, very much for reading for us. Please do just flip back over the page to page 23. We're going to begin there as we look at 29, Genesis 29 together. Before we come to that, though, let me pray. Um, I'll pray for our, our students as well as they're away on this weekend. They'll be doing the same thing we're doing right now. So let me pray um, for us all. Lord God, our Father, we thank you that you speak as your word is read and preached. And Lord, we, we know that um, our own hearts are the, are, need to be open to what you're saying to us. So we pray for ourselves this morning and for the students at the weekend away. We pray, Lord God, that you would work in us today through your word, that you might help us to understand what your word says, but also, Lord God, that you would change us, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. This is his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to quote to you four different Bible characters, and I want you to see if you can spot the connection between what they say. So first of all, Job. Job, the great man of God who suffered so much in his life, uh, said these words. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. That's Job. Uh, Solomon, the great wise king, he said this to his son. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Then the writer to the Hebrews, number three. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then finally, the Lord Jesus himself says this to his church. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You see the connection? It's fairly obvious, isn't it? Discipline. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines the people that he has chosen for himself. And that means that he will often bring them into situations of challenge and hardship for their good, that he might make them holy through it. And that's the goal, that's the end that he has in mind for us Christians, our holiness. He will often discipline us through giving us painful situations so that we might repent of sin 
and bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. I want us to keep this in mind as we look at this incident in the life of Jacob because I think that that explains what's happening in this chapter, that God is at work on Jacob's heart. Now, we might not spot that straight away because there's no explicit reference to God at all in verses 1 to 30 of chapter 29, and that really makes it stand out amongst the chapters of Genesis. We're not given any commentary by the author on what we're supposed to learn, nor do the characters mention God at all. But as we look closely at what's happening here, I think we're going to see that this is what God is doing. Out of his love for Jacob, out of his love for his chosen one, he is disciplining him in order to change him. Now we've seen over the last couple of weeks that Jacob is a man in dire need of change. Uh, He's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a deceiver, deceiving his father, cheating his brother out of his inheritance. Jacob's had to flee his homeland. He's done so under the excuse of going to find a wife, but really it's because his life is under threat from his brother Esau. But even then, we saw this last week, even then, when he's alone and he's in the dark and he's in the middle of nowhere with nothing but a stone for his pillow, even then, Jacob never asks God for help. He doesn't give any consideration to God at all. And yet, God graciously finds him and reveals himself in the most amazing way to him at Bethel. There the Lord assured this wayward sinner of his love for him, reiterated his commitment to him, that he is indeed the chosen heir of Abraham's promises, and that God would be with him wherever he goes. But even then, instead of praising God and trusting him, Jacob seeks to do a deal with God. He said to the Lord, look God, if you prove your faithfulness to me, well then you can be my God. It's pretty arrogant, isn't it? Thinking God has to meet his needs before he can be trusted. That he somehow has to prove himself first. But that's how it was with Jacob. So Jacob's a man, he's chosen by God. God graciously wants to bless him and to use him in his purposes to save the world. But he's a man in dire need of transformation. If he's to become useful, he needs the Lord's discipline. Now we're going to look at what happens in this chapter in two scenes. And we'll see that God loves Jacob in two different ways. First of all, that he's with Jacob, that's scene one. And then secondly, that he disciplines Jacob, that's scene two. So scene one, verses one to 14, the first half of this chapter, a wanderer is welcomed, the Lord is with Jacob. Have you ever had deja vu? You're in a situation you think, I've been here before, definitely. Sometimes my kids will say that, they'll say, oh, I've got deja vu, and and what I'll say is, quick, what am I going to do next? They kind of, you flick them or something like that, and uh, that breaks the spell. Well, you, you may be experiencing deja vu, as we read verse 1 to 14. 
There's lots of familiar things here. There's a trip to Haran to find a wife. There's a visit to a well. There's a meeting with a woman whose name begins with R. There's a man called Laban who comes running out. You think, we've been here before. It's all very chapter 24. If you remember, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac, go and find Rebekah. And it's very similar to that, but there are some differences. And the most notable difference of all is the absence of a reference to the Lord. In chapter 24, when Abraham sent his godly servant to go and find a wife for Isaac to his cousin's family, to Laban's family, the servant, we kept being told, the servant kept on praying. He was depending on God. He was asking, the God, asking God to guide him, to lead him to the right person and to make him successful. And then the servant, when he found Rebekah, he gave thanks to the Lord. There's none of that here. It's a hint to us that Jacob is still not yet a man of faith. He's still plowing on, making his own way in the world with no regard for God. But nonetheless, God is with Jacob as he promised he would be. And the way that we know God is with Jacob is by the divine arrangement of the circumstances. Those first few verses there, in chapter 29, verses 1 to 3, Jacob's travelled over 500 miles up to Haram, to the people of the east, and he finds himself by this well. And it's kind of a really beautiful scene, isn't it? It's the sort of thing you'd see in a, in a big gallery, a landscape uh, image, painting. The well in the field with the big stone that's um, placed over the top of it. The, the three flocks of sheep gathered around. The shepherds perhaps gathered around a fire, uh, sharing something to eat, chatting together. It's quite a beautiful scene. But what strikes us is what's said in verses 4 and 5. Let me read them. Jacob said to the shepherds, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. And they think, Oh, that's interesting. That's where Jacob was told to go by his mum and dad. Uh, That's where his uncle lives. Then verse 5, He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. It's remarkable. The Lord has led Jacob, 500 miles across the desert to people who know the man he's come to find. And then it just so happens that Laban's daughter turns up at that very moment. Verse 6, he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. I mean, what are the chances? Well, we know it's not chance at all. God is arranging the events of Jacob's life, for his good. He's finding a wife for him, a future wife for him, so that he can keep his promise to him of offspring. Now what happens next, I think, is that Jacob asks the shepherds, kind of, why are you guys just hanging around, uh, not doing anything? Why aren't you getting on with the job of watering the sheep? Presumably he does that because he thinks, well, Rachel's just turned up and she's kind of fourth in line. There are already three flocks there. And it's going to take ages for her to finish their work, and he really wants to talk to her. But the shepherds, they they sort of seem a bit lazy. They don't want to keep moving the stone on and off the well all the time. They want to wait till everybody's got together, and then they can just do it once. Now, this gives Jacob a golden opportunity 
to impress his future bride. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And what a great first impression he must have made. Imagine him just beforehand doing some stretches, sort of limbering up, uh, maybe he rolls up his sleeves to flex his muscles before uh, he sets himself to haul this great stone off the well, all by himself. It needed teams of shepherds, but he does it all on his own. It's very impressive. And then verse 11, uh, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. He's met this girl. It turns out, we find this out later, that she's an absolute fox. He's impressed her with his strength. His emotions have got the better of him, and he's kissed her, which is is probably a family greeting, but it's a bit inappropriate before you've introduced yourself. Um, I don't recommend that you do that when you first meet a woman. And then he's cried, and I don't recommend you do that either. The impression we get here is, here's a guy who is swept away by his emotions, by the joy of this meeting. After the worst night of his life with that rocky pillow, things are looking rosy again. But notice too that the author is dropping a hint to us that at this stage, it's actually Rachel's father who is the significant figure. You notice how much Laban, his mother's brother, is mentioned. It's Laban that he wants to get in with. And now he gets his chance, verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So again, this seems to go well for Jacob, doesn't it? This is one of the brightest and happiest episodes in the book of Genesis, and certainly in Jacob's life. Things seem to be going better than expected, even. The Lord's been with Jacob and blessed him. He's brought him safely to Laban and this beautiful Rachel. Through this series of fortunate incidents and good relations have been established. He's welcomed into the home as part of the family. God is providentially at work to secure Jacob's future, as he promised he would. He's blessed him and will bring about his plans. The Lord is with Jacob. So, so far, so good. Everything's turning up Jacob. Except that there is one note that might give us some caution. It's very subtle and we might have missed it. Uh, but it will have serious consequences for what happens next. It's in verse 13. We read there that Jacob told Laban all these things. And it makes us wonder, what did he tell him? Did he tell him about his plan to marry one of his daughters? Did he tell him about God's promise to bless him as the heir? Did he tell him about his penniless refugee status? Did he tell him about the birthrights and the blessing that he tricked his father and brother out of? 
Well, the text says that he told him all these things. And what does Laban say in response? Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. It's almost the same thing that Adam said to Eve when he met her. He says, Jacob, you're just like me. And that should ring an alarm bell. What we're going to see is that Laban is not the kind of guy that you should reveal your heart to. He's the kind of guy who will take that knowledge and use it against you. In Laban, Jacob has met his match. That takes us to scene two, which is verses 15 to 30. Deceiver deceived, the Lord disciplines Jacob. Now in scene two, we begin to notice that things aren't quite right early on. And verse 14 and 15, they reveal to us that Jacob's been working for Laban for a month with no pay. And even Laban seems to know that that's pushing it, and so seeks to strike a deal. Verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? And it's then for the first time that we discover that Laban has in fact got two daughters, and that Rachel is the younger of the two. Her older sister is Leah. And the difference between the between the two is striking. Verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And the word translated weak there, it's a really unusual word. We don't actually know exactly what it means. It may mean that she's short-sighted, that she's kind of squinting all the time, or that her eyes look odd in some way. But whatever it, whatever it was exactly, the author's telling us that that it was the only striking thing about her. She was marked out by this problem. And as we're going to see, she was cruelly rejected because of it. And if that's not bad enough, she must have lived in the shadow of her younger sister, who was an absolute stunner, beautiful in form and appearance. And that must have been really hard for her. Now the Bible here is not mocking her. It's being realistic that people look different and that some are more physically attractive than others. And it's also showing us that, wrongly, sometimes people are loved or rejected simply because of the way that they look. And many of us have felt that in our lives. Leah here is really mistreated. Now tune in next week to find out how the Lord sees Leah and how he's got a plan for her, how he values her, uh, even in a way that her family don't. That's next week. For now, let's just come back uh, to this part of the story. Remember that we said at the start that this story's about the Lord disciplining the one he loves for his own good. That's what we're going to see here. We're going to see that he does it by giving Jacob a taste of his own medicine. Let's read on uh, from verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me, 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Marriages in this culture were transactions between families, and, and Jacob, the wheeler dealer, he's the, he's the guy who struck that great deal with his brother, a one-sided bargain with Esau for the birthright, just a bowl of soup in exchange for that. Well, here he makes a one-sided bargain the other way. He's blinded by his love for Rachel. In fact, he doesn't, he doesn't really bargain at all. He jumps straight in with what is a huge offer, seven years of his life given away, uh, just like that. I noticed Laban's uh, lukewarm response. I suppose it's better to give it to you than someone else. I noticed that he doesn't actually say which daughter he's thinking of giving, does he? That's actually more important than we might think. In a world where there's no such thing as written contracts, uh, verbal agreements like this were binding. So Laban is legally keeping his options open uh, on this deal. Jacob, he doesn't even notice, does he? He doesn't question it. He's so swept up in his love for Rachel, he doesn't give it any attention. And in fact, the seven years pass like just a few days. And so we come to the wedding. Now, Jacob's speech to Laban in verse 21 uh, is frankly rude. And Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. It's impatient. It's sexually charged, it's selfishly motivated. But despite his rudeness, the wedding proceeds. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Now we might think, look, how on earth does he fall for this? But we need to bear in mind that it's dark, it's the evening, and there's no electric light. She's probably veiled, and it may well be that Jacob's feeling the effects of the wedding wine. And so the deceiver is deceived. Remember how he disguised himself as his brother Esau to deceive his blind father in the tent? It comes back to bite him. In the morning he wakes up and in the dawn light he realises, you know, you can imagine him sort of rolling over, uh, let me gaze into his, my new wife's eyes and for the first time he's sort of, whoa, it's, it's Leah, behold, it was Leah. Listen to the irony of his complaint in verse 25. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel why then have you deceived me? It's quite something, isn't it? Why then have you deceived me? He feels what it's like to be deceived. And what Laban says next is really a punch between the eyes, isn't it? It must have pierced his heart. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. It's right on the money, isn't it? All those memories of how he cheated his brother must have come flooding back in. Now he knows how it feels to be on the receiving end of such sin. What's going on? 
In all this mess, God is teaching Jacob a lesson. He's not letting him get away with his sinful actions. His deceit has cost him his family, his homeland, and now 14 years of his life and his labor. And now his marriage couldn't have got off to a worse start, could it? His sin comes back to bite him on the backside. He's allowed to feel what it's like to be on the receiving end, the end of that sin, and what a mess it makes. God is disciplining him so that he might flee from his sin and pursue righteousness. Now, it's going to take us a while, actually, to see the effects of God's action here in Jacob's life. Really, it's going to take another six chapters and several years and before we see it. But what we will see is that through a series of, of hardships and challenges and rebukes like this one, God is at work on Jacob's heart to change him, to transform him from this arrogant, self-centered, godless man, a man who's out to grasp things for himself, no matter the cost to others. Change him into a man who trusts the Lord, who is humbled, who understands that the grace of God alone is what has saved him, and who in the end comes to be a blessing and to bless others. This is just the first lesson in that process of discipline that goes on through his lifetime, by which he will be changed. Now as we come to close, how do we apply this to our own lives? Well, two things for us to see. Uh, Two things that correspond to the two halves of this section. And the first one is this, that God is with us even if we don't acknowledge him. God blesses Jacob. He does. He ends up with a wife. He ends up with the prospect of the offspring that God has promised him. And as we'll see in the end of the story, it's a long time later, but he ends up back in the land. He does it with a good deal of upset and with pain, but he does get there. God will bring about his purposes in our lives, but it will be because of his kindness and not because of our faithfulness. Our sin does not thwart his purposes. Our sin will not stop him from getting to the destination that he wants for us into his heaven. Now, you just have to read Genesis to realize that that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't matter or that we can just do whatever we like. We can still mess things up. We can still cause all sorts of problems for ourselves and for others. But God is committed to us. Even when we do that, even when we give him little attention, even when we put our own agendas instead of first instead of his plans. In Christ, such is the kindness of God to those whom he has chosen. God is with us even when we don't acknowledge him. And that's astonishing, isn't it? But it's true. That's the first takeaway. Here's um, the second. God is with us. God disciplines those he loves. And he does so to make them holy and useful. Now, if we just read the first half of chapter 29, 
Uh, we could have come to the conclusion that, that when God chooses someone, he makes everything in their life from that point on sort of plain sailing. But we didn't stop at verse 14. We read on uh, to the end of the chapter, and the second half disabuses us of that notion, doesn't it? God calls us sinners as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. He's like the master sculptor. He takes a block of uneven, ugly stone with bits sticking out, with rough edges, with cracks and with flaws, and he chips and he chisels and he sands down and he shapes and he polishes and he shines until he has worked for himself a masterpiece. Now the stone, if it could feel, would feel that as an unpleasant experience. It is painful to have the Lord work on our hearts in this way. The hard things of our lives, the suffering, the the challenges, the stresses, the rebukes, we don't want it, we don't like it, but the Lord knows that we need it. There are things in your life and things in my life, things that are ugly in our character, that cannot be changed apart from his discipline. The Lord loves us, and so he blesses us with his discipline. See, the story of Jacob teaches us that you can't conclude that if there's hard stuff going on in your life, God's not with you anymore. In fact, the hard stuff may well be the evidence that he is with you and that he is for you. We need to learn, painful as it may be, not to despise his discipline, but to see it as a kind gift from a loving father who is at work on us for our goods. So let's ask the question, when the hard things come, is there something in me that he graciously and lovingly wants to change. Now for Jacob, it was deceit, it was lying and cheating. What is it for me? What is it for you? How might the Lord use this painful experience to make you more like Jesus? Do not despise the Lord's discipline Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves those whom he loves, as the father a son in whom he delights. He disciplines us because he loves us. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, as we consider these things, we're conscious that they're for, for many of us in this room, for all of us in this room, there are things that, we have that are hard in our lives, things that we wish weren't there, things that we find difficult and challenging, and things which rebuke us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to listen to your voice. Help us not to despise your discipline. Help us to see it as the act of a loving father. And Lord, help us to repent. Lord God, we know that we need changing. We pray that you would change us by your spirit 
that you would conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be useful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.